0: Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Pod of the Gaps, the podcast which seeks to plug the gaps between the church and the culture. Uh, my name is Aaron Edwards and I'm joined as ever by the Punmeister himself, Andrew Bannister. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing well. Although An- actually I called that- you Andrew for the first time. You did,
1: and immediately I could just feel my, my, my demeanour kinda of like uh sort of reducing because normally when I'm called Andrew it means I'm in trouble. You know, when when, when I- <laughs> When I was a teenager and I'd done something, my mother was always Andrew. And then my well, you, wife. You will be. <laughs> my wife now. You know, I know when she says, Andrew. And if I get Andrew Jeffrey Bannister, then I know I've really done something, really something bad.
0: Well, you, you will be you will be in trouble after this episode, i We sure. probably
1: will. But um, in the meantime, though, I've, I, I don't care. Because I've actually, until you called me the wrong name, you missed. Gender, no, they're misnamed. I'm um, I'm excited. I'm really excited. I'm I'm very excited to say, indeed.
0: What are we? What? Are, what could you possibly be so excited about?
1: Well, I'm very excited, uh, Aaron, because it's uh, it's getting closer and closer and closer to us doing Pod of the Gaps live. Um, mm. so for listeners who didn't catch this last time, uh, Aaron and I are going to be at the Cedarwood Festival, which is uh, up in County Durham, up in the northeast of uh, of England. The festival runs from the fifteenth to the seventeenth of July. Uh, we're there on the 17th and we're doing a live episode. So uh, it's going to be me mm. and uh, and your, uh, your bearded self. And yeah. uh, a friend of ours called David uh, Stratton Downs, who is the brains behind Cedarwood, is going to join us and sort of try and MC or referee or do something in the an E. <laughs> and uh, it'll be great. So if you're a fan of the show and you're in the area, I was bad to say you're not a fan of the show, but if you're not a fan of the show, you wouldn't be listening to this. Therefore, you wouldn't hear the advert. But anyway, if you are...
0: there could be a troll. We get trolls, don't we?
1: We do. We do sometimes. So it could be
0: it? someone who wants to cause trouble and ask us a bad question. Well, that's all right. Of- it? You've, you've spoken at Speaker's Corner, haven't I you? Have. But when, I have.
1: Yeah. Although I don't know. It's the, it, the sun's going to be shining. And I think when my my reading of Tolkien tells me that when trolls come out in the daylight, don't they turn to stone? <laughs> that's a good point. When they come yeah. out from of the Twitter rock, they sort of. That's right. They, they yeah, we're, on a, we're midday up. we well, one o'clock,
0: are we? On, on this 17th. But so trolls are July. a big it's thing. They're a big thing
1: in Scandinavia, aren't the, they? And I think you've got some Viking thing going on, you were telling me.
0: I have, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I've been re- researching for a lecture on I'm doing in in the in autumn on um, how we converted the Vikings. It's something that is very fascinating to me to and Christianity, American by cultures, the way. I'm assuming kind of not
1: not from like ga- not from gas to electric. This is from
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. We're, 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 well, we'll see. We'll see about that, won't we? What what that entails? But it's um, yeah, the it's really interesting just getting into kind of it's a quite all the rage really. Viking culture has sort of made a bit of a return in the popular imagination since kind of the series about the Vikings that came out, a uh, popular series, uh, I forget which was the Netflix or Amazon Prime. Um, but it was, it's just interesting looking back into that area of, era of history and um, just seeing some of the um, ridiculous um, risks that had to be taken by missionaries to reach this kind of completely very different kind of civilization. It's kind of fascinating. And I also found that on my research travels, I saw a picture come up on YouTube, because I've been mm. trying to look for certain videos as well, um, a, a picture of a hand which had this condition called, um, what's it called again? Jupiter's contracture. Oh, yes. Which my dad actually had. Uh, when I saw I saw this picture of this hand. It was like, oh, that's what my dad's hand looked like before he had his operation many years ago. It's where one of your fingers, kind of like your ring finger, sort of turns in on itself, and eventually your hand kind of closes over. And some people have made the theory over the years that, um, if someone has that in your family, then you're more likely to be related to a Viking, because that's apparently the Viking disease, as they say, because they apparently on the longboats, somehow, because the, the way they're using the kind of oars, yes. that kind of created this problem, so it passed it on genetically. So okay. you could be in the presence of a Viking ancestor right now, or, you know, Well
1: I am, of course an um, I am married to a Viking. Uh, my wife is uh, you are she course. is my wife is yeah. half English, and then 25 percent Swedish, 25 percent Norwegian. And the funny thing is, when I go to Sweden. Um, I often pass for for uh, you know a descendant of Vikings. I can pass for somebody who's Nordic because 'cause I've got blonde hair and blue eyes. But when I'm sitting down, when I stand up and I'm only five foot eight, then people <laughs> realise I'm um I'm either an imposter or a bonsai Viking. Um That's right, yeah. And but then we like a bit Swedish culture. So I was in uh, I was in London uh recently for some meetings uh and uh, we went out I went out with a colleague to find uh, lunch and we were down at this uh, there's, there's this canal behind Paddington station uh in London, Paddington. Basin. And you were sat down
0: presumably to pre- accentuate I your was, height I was. When, Paddington when Basin, sitting. I think yeah. it's called.
1: And we found this this kind of quite funky Swedish uh restaurant there. So you we, we had the uh you know it was very traditional. We had we had meatballs and uh and gravadlacks and uh very expensive prices um kind of thing. So um but yes we ate <laughs> Swedish uh, whilst whilst in London which is very exciting.
0: Very exciting, very vi- very Viking of you. Very kind of very keeping, Viking. It. keeping it, Viking. Very Viking. Hashtag Viking. Actually,
1: Viking. But the thing I did notice in London, though, um, Aaron does does kind of link to our theme for today because one of the things I, I noticed uh, in London um, is there are flags everywhere. Everywhere there were these flags fluttering, and uh, they were rainbow British flags, flags I presume. No, Jubilee last... flags, and no, not Jubilee oh, flags. Interesting. Um, the whole place was bedecked, or parts of it were bedecked with uh with LGBT flags because as we are recording this, we are coming to the end of, of Pride uh month. Pride, of course, it used to be uh used to be a day, uh then it became a week, uh, then it became a, a month. So I wonder at what point they're just gonna flip it round and there'll be one, there'll be a non-pride week. The whole of the year <laughs> yeah, right. and there'll be one week when you take the flags down. Um but London, like many other major cities, has been just absolutely festooned uh in stuff and it's kind of everywhere, isn't it? You can't Mm. You can't ignore it. In fact, we went out to a national trust property the other day with the grandparents, and like two of the volunteers were wearing like rainbow lanyards, and the and the rainbow mm. imagery is everywhere. And yeah. uh, and then I noticed a story yesterday in the paper where Halifax, one of the big banks here in the UK, have just put uh, make a, a sort of really strongly pressurising all of their staff to wear rainbow badges with their pronouns yeah. on. And literally, yeah. somebody from the marketing department has said, "Well, any customers who are offended by this can just take their accounts elsewhere." Which I uh Amazing. I was thinking I wonder if that's I wonder what happens when the shareholders hear that idea because I'm not <laughs> sure that actually you know people went into Zeno yeah. expect that the way to be the bank, bank behavior yeah, yeah. pride is everywhere right right now you can't escape yeah it.
0: absolutely it's interesting you make the point about corporations I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment yes. but um I think the thing about the flags is the most intriguing because I think you you posted or you showed me yes a picture you saw and I saw one an even more troubling one last year pride last year which was actually at the Munich town hall of the long rainbow drapes. And at first I thought this must be a satire, but it apparently wasn't. Mm. And it, I mean, uh, you know, the kind of the way of (laughs) the impression it gives is just, just frightening. And many people have been tweeting about that this year. I was kind of like, yeah, we've been seeing this for a while now, how close the sort of, Nazi regalia just it's just replaced by lgbt regalia and and of course, that can seem a trite comparison. there is that famous it's Goldman's law where everyone ends up comparing someone else to a nazi um i'll I'll call you a Nazi before this episode is out don't worry That's um, do. but Thank you. Yeah, well, I am a Viking after all um so I, I but the I think in this case, the way you can make the connection less trite is certainly clearly not just the optic of just seeing this, mm-hmm. but it's the ideology it's the fact that. It's you're swept along in this aesthetic haze. It's, how, it's a huge part of how the Nazis won their battles was through propaganda and through bringing the ideology out in aesthetics. And so massive torch parades and rallies, and don't worry, it's not as bad as you think. It's actually fine. In fact, not just fine, this is what you sort of have to believe, but it starts off very slowly and it grows and grows. So you mentioned it started off as a day. Of course, I remember growing up in Brighton, the, certainly the gay capital of England. I don't know if it was the gay capital of Europe or not? But maybe that's claiming too much. But it was a, a significant area of clearly of where where Pride was was celebrated. And so I remember it just being a thing where you sort of stay out of the city centre because it was a bit raucous on Pride Day. And now it's obviously grown hugely, and you, you know the corporations have all jumped on board um, and sort of realised actually it's good for business. Pride is good for business because they've realised this is the ideology that I need to get on board with. Now any ideology that sets itself up as the new norm of what you're supposed to believe is going to be good for business. It was probably good for business to be a Nazi at one point and fly the flag, or as it was to be a communist in Soviet Russia. So I think there's a huge danger that basically pride is an ideology, and people need to realise that. They're not just dealing with, oh, this is just a lovely thing where people who were previously persecuted now get to celebrate the fact that they're not persecuted. It's a lot more insidious than that, and I think Christians need to
1: wake up, basically. Yeah, I think there's a lot i there's a lot I'd, I'd agree with there. I think the use of art and aesthetics to advance worldviews is is interesting, as you say. The Nazis put a lot of energy into that. I think the other thing as well is, of course, uh, you know, Nazism took the, literally took no prisoners. There was no there were no competing mm. worldviews allowed. Yeah. Everything was driven from the from the public square. Mm. And when I saw you know some of those images, and we've used one. Um, on the on the image for the show for this this episode of Pod of the Gap. So if you if your podcast provider doesn't show the image of the show, go look at that. Particularly our SoundCloud page, see the big version, and you'll go that some you know the the mm. optics there are very are very similar. And I think this idea that you have to drive all competitors out, you can't allow dissent, um, even within the movement, is interesting because there was um you know was it was it last year that there was a you know, there was another uh, one of the big LGBT organisations here in the UK mm. Stonewall. um and that's ever expanded originally originally they they were they were representing lesbian gay and bisexual people now they've expanded to the Mm. to the whole alphabet and that caused quite a lot of consternation because there were some in the in the lesbian gay and bisexual community were like well hang on what's the T doing you know what is transgender got to do with with sexual attraction Mm. and there was a rival organization started the lgb alliance and looking at the Mm. way that stonewall have gone after them and tried to sabotage them, tried to slander them. Mm. Um, it's got really quite vicious infighting because no dissent is allowed, not even within the community. And I find uh, yeah. I find that fascinating. As an aside, by the way, I mentioned Brighton. I always wondered whether one of the reasons why Brighton became the sort of centre of gay culture is – I mean, it's helped by the weather. There's got to be a link between the weather and this stuff, right? <laughs> I mean, they, did, they didn't choose Scarborough, right? That's <laughs> true. Hawaii, or Dundee. Or Dundee. Yeah. Dundee did not become yeah. – the center of, uh, of culture, but one of the things that's fascinated me, though, Aaron, I'd love to get your take on this. Is the way that is also the way that this movement is effectively. and I am not the only one to, to point this out. There are there are lots of secular uh, writers and also mm. critiques within within the, the LGB movement who have pointed this out. The way that Pride mm. has become has become like a quasi religious movement, mm. uh, right? In the, yeah. in the fact that you have an orthodoxy um you know if you dissent you're a blasphemer you're a heretic the way that you're you're, you're treated and i was reminded you know gk chesterton the famous uh, catholic mm. uh, writer from over 100 years ago you know mm. once remarked he said you know when when god is forced out of a society um the gods come marching in in the, as, a, mm. as, a, as a vacuum is is created it was also chesterton i think who who said uh words to the effect of you know when people stop when men stop believing in god they don't believe in nothing they believe in anything and that because mm. human beings are inherently religious you know if you push yeah. the, the the real god out the front door that vacuum mm. ends up getting filled with something mm. and other ideologies get sucked mm. into that mm. into that gap
0: yeah absolutely i i totally t- agree before i jump on your um on that point there about the religion mm. i just wanted to make a quick comment on the on, on the, the weather you know, the the LGBT, on the weather it's a lovely weather today l g b t of course is q i a plus yes and it's the plus that I think a lot of people, especially commentators on the right in America, are further ahead, I would say, in terms of calling out some of the problems in Pride. I think we're very reluctant to call out anything in, in British evangelical culture. Of course, US has lots of problems as well. Um, but I do think there's something that they're seeing. A lot of people are commenting, commenting on this that we're not. And I think the plus is the most dangerous one what what does that plus entail it's undefined there are regularly more things being added into that and the, you know different approaches whether we talk about polyamory some would even say pedophilia because it's very hard eventually to completely cut out the idea that someone has a particular attraction um and so we so we'll start to see a different sort of shift in culture towards that i think we'll come back to that shifting in culture later on when i mention a,
1: a just a, just a, a quick aside to yeah, your yeah. side. A good example. Of a that. side to the side. It's not often picked up over here, but in Canada, mm. where I lived for six years, one of the letters that is mm. often thrown in alongside LGBTQIA plus T is thrown in there, and T is two spirited because there is this idea mm. in um, which I think comes partly from some some bits of uh native uh, you know, Aboriginal, uh, can- Aboriginal Canadian uh, uh, culture, this idea that within somebody can actually be two spirits. You can have both a male spirit soul and a female soul living within the one body. Huh. So you are, you are both, you're two spirited. And, wow. uh, and so you don't hear that so often over here. But the first time I came across that in Canada, I found that fascinating and I use the word fascinating deliberately because I think as Christians, mm. we don't mock, mm. we can challenge, mm. we can critique. Mm. But like we mm. mocking is important not to mock because, yeah. because the people you're talking to right. take this deadly seriously, um, yeah, yeah. and I think it's important that we engage thoughtfully. Mm. Absolutely, we critique. yeah, absolutely
0: we should. We well. Gosh, I, I, I'm now thinking of an aside to this side to this side. <laughs> when Michael was on the show, we used to talk about the interjection to the interjection to the interjection. Yes. The so footnote- we're still managing that. That my yeah. first book, <laughs> exactly. I,
1: one of my proudest moments, so I managed to get a footnote on a footnote, and, excellent because uh, I just thought right. it was funny um, and the. Uh, <laughs>
0: It keeps on going. That's great. Yeah. Um, so where was I? On the other side, to the uh, side, to the side. Yeah, oh, yeah, that I was guess. it. So, so yeah. I, okay, I think there's a little... Oh, I don't want to... I, clearly, I don't believe that we should be mocking. But, like, when we talk about other religions, and you mentioned this thing about mm. the gods moving in, the wonderful Chesterton quote. I mean, you know, when we talk about confronting ideologies yes. that are... that set themselves up against God, which pride does, okay? So if you're a Christian, you think for many years you've thought, oh, it's not such a bad idea. You know, it's just people wanting to sort of celebrate who they are. And it's not for us to convert their morality. We want to convert them to become Christians first, which that is basically my modus operandi, as it would be for you, Andy, as, as evangelists at heart, we want to we want to preach the gospel to people. But in many ways that stopped us speaking out against the things that are just outright offensive to who God is, blasphemous to him, um, and, and just traipsing all over the kind of Christian heritage that we have in this Culture. Now, we don't want to claim cultural heritage per se as Christian necessarily, but you want to say that Christianity has influenced culture in a significant way. And we're, and one thing we do in this podcast is try to speak into those areas where the church has sort of thought, oh, am I allowed to talk about this or not? Well, actually, if Jesus is Lord of all, he is Lord of all, um, and, and we, we are able to speak into these areas. And I think for too long we've been reticent to speak out against pride because we've had in mind the kind of Westboro Baptist kind of, you know, was it Louis III, wasn't it, the documentary many years ago, where we saw the kind of God hates fag stuff and everyone's so terrified of looking anywhere near a Westboro Baptist church approach that we sort of don't say anything at all. And we just sort of even go along to it and go, this is wonderful. We can celebrate the good here. And it gets increasingly more depraved every year. It gets increasingly more um, imposive upon a Christian worldview. So to the extent that I was debating with someone on Twitter earlier this month, a a big pride organiser, who was really going hell for leather about, no pun intended, about um, the <laughs> fact that numerous puns could come out there. Um, Some
1: people would say the, that as a pun. I'd say that as a fallacy. <laughs>
0: exactly. Like, now you're really going to be in trouble, Andrew, for that. For what? Um, yeah. No, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so and he he was going hell for leather about about the fact that everyone's inclusive, everyone's welcome at Pride. It's such a wonderful inclusive event. And I was like, I was like, genuinely, I'm not asking a bad faith question here. Am I welcome? I don't believe in pride. I don't think it's a good thing. Am I welcome to come along to pride and share my view respectfully, not being mean to you? Is it possible for me to share my view that I don't agree with you and I think this is a bad idea? Is it even possible to share that respectfully? And obviously everyone started weighing in and the guy himself responded several times. Why would you even want to come if you don't agree? And I was like, "But you said that well, everyone is everyone welcome. welcome. It's inclusive. Are they welcome or are they not? I don't even understand why you'd want to come and cause trouble and tell us we're all wrong. Hey, I, I'm not telling you what I'm going to say. What if I was allowed to come along and just I have to be able to share my view. Right? I'm a Christian. I don't believe it. It, it, it interrupts my own uh, ability to kind of, you know, find this helpful or good. I'm not going to give glory to God or thanks to God for pride. I can't do it. I'm sorry." Um, I, can, I might be able to give thanks to God for the image of God in all human beings. I could say that. I could say I'm not going to devalue you as a person. I'm still going to have, have a chat with you. I could be um, friendly with you even, but I'm, I'm not going to support what this event stands for. Am I allowed to say that respectfully, as nicely as I possibly can? And it's really, really clear that I, that wasn't even possible. They really weren't welcoming. And so that showed really that people have been hoodwinked into thinking this is just a neutral thing. It's just something that outside the church's sphere of influence – we don't have to say anything and if we do say anything it's better be kind of nice and apologizing for the homophobia in the church which apparently all evangelical churches have been guilty of apparently and i just think that isn't true i think some have but a lot, vast majority of evangelical churches have
1: been head over heels trying not to look homophobic for well, the other decades the other now. question that occurs to me has a couple There's many things that uh that 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 occur that occur to me um one of them is that is that is is interesting is that you talk about you know alluded to Christians you know going along and you talked about you know would you be welcome and so forth I mean I'm struck by the fact that some years ago we had a couple of friends of ours who were who were Christians so they, they were same they were same-sex attracted they were in a relationship and they it was mm. possible they got they got married and they would obviously being from that you know end of the theological spectrum they would happily trot themselves along to pride every year and make a big thing of it mm. I remember at the time even then being a bit disturbed and going okay aside from the theological issues a the whole discussion there around what marriage is and we, we've talked about that mm. a lot of the gaps is I'm just sort of thinking, why as a Christian, even if you agreed with the idea of you know same-sex marriage, if you were at that end of the mm. theological spectrum, why would you go to an event that is labeled pride? Given that one of the biggest biblical warnings, time and time and time and time again, is against is against pride. Pride is one of the roots, is one of the roots of, of, of mm. most sins, actually, pride and idolatry. Mm. Um, quite mm. frankly. Um, I would yeah. have far more time for somebody who was theologically at that end of the spectrum saying, you know, I actually think, you know, marriage can be between people of the same sex, but I'm still not going to go to Pride because I'm not comfortable. Mm. And then when you when you look at some of the excesses, um, I think mm. I may have told the story on Paul of the Gats of Four of when I was in Canada, you know, coming across this amazing story of those there's, there's a, I came across this uh, this this gay atheist uh, liberal Jew who was uh who was who was mm. active in the gay community until he came out part the pun against pride because his argument mm-hmm. was well, hang on. You know, we you know, the people in the gay community want to be treated normally. We want to, you know, want our relationships normalized. Um, he said, mm-hmm. "Well, that doesn't really square very well with re- with with demanding to be able to, you know, walk stark naked through the streets of Toronto, painted pink with a plastic phallus on your head." He went, "Those two mm-hmm. things don't go together. You either want normality and to be treated as grown-ups, or we want to behave like a bunch of you mm-hmm. know lust-filled teenagers." And now he yeah. got death threats. From his own wow. community, he ended up with with the, mm. with the RCMP having to protect him because he'd publicly, as a gay man, taken a stand against Pride. Mm. And that's the piece that also I find fascinating that nobody is actually really willing to talk about. It would be one thing if Pride mm. were just a, you know, a celebration of, you know, of, say same-sex relationships and and the ability the community have now to get married, but it's not, is it? It's 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 no. every kind of. I'm going to come around out and use the, the use the perversion. Word it it mm. is what I've just described. But yeah. It's also people wanting to you know celebrate every kind of you know pretty extreme sexuality. Mm. It reminds me in some ways, yeah. it feels like the pagan world. It looks like the culture mm. that the church, mm. and that's mm. the other thing by the way that people think it's progressive. If you look back to the first few centuries, <clears throat> the, the era the church began in, no, the pagan world then, the Greco-Roman world mm. was sexually mm. extremely licentious. Mm. Um, yeah, well, uh,
0: exactly, and it goes back to your previous point about the gods, doesn't it? Because you know. Uh, and and goes back to the Vikings. It always goes back there to the Vikings. There is a Vikings link to the, the Vikings, Vikings yes. uh, yeah. And, but I mean, you th- so you think eighth, ninth, tenth century kind of peak Viking vibes <laughs> peak uh, Viking. going on? <laughs> peak Viking.
1: You drew a graph. Um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs>
0: that's right. Yeah. It all kind of goes down a hill after well, that. Well, I did see a graph once. Christians. The
1: point to get, as the number of Vikings has gone down. Global warming has gone up. So maybe <laughs> is there a connection? But <laughs> yeah, I think correlation is right. not equal causation.
0: That's right, that's right. Uh, the amount of banister puns could be correlated with all sorts of things as well I expect yeah, I um that. but but so but obviously one of the things that the the Christians had to contend with when they when they're trying to evangelize the Vikings is their very kind of complex um religious system um of the gods, the kind of pantheon of gods which were very violent. the gods that they worshipped were violent and they were sexually abusive, so you know Thor is a serial rapist, and so it's not that all Viking culture celebrated, let's say, rape around the, uh, in in any case, they did respect sort of, you know, boundaries of marriage and things like this. But um, there were many, you know, sort of uh, allowances made for infidelity and for uh, rape as well. So there was a rape culture that was significant and it was linked to their religion in the same way why they would kind of pillage and kill people who are Beyond because they are they're kind of impressing the gods by what they do, so you literally i mean there's a famous phrase you are what you worship, you become what you worship so it's no surprise that there's a link here between when we 've gotten rid of our we've started you know mocking um Christendom mocking um the judeo Christian tradition in the West so much we've become more and more secular or we've, or we've become more and more spiritually apathetic. It's not that we cease to worship. We worship other things. We worship ourselves. We worship sexuality. And we, and we make a really terrible version of it. It's not that Christians should be thinking, oh, let's be prudish and just say, oh, sex, sex is bad. It's clearly, sex is wonderful and it's a God-given gift and you can only really understand it within the confines of how God, who created you and created sexuality, actually um, in, you know instituted it. So we, we, we've we moved away from the moorings in scripture. We've started basically laughing at some of the scriptural um, precedence on sexuality increasingly, even in the church, we, we sort of steer away from certain passages. So it's no, it's no surprise at all that all this kind of stuff comes in, and we're we're basically, you know, coming back to sort of pagan uh, idolatry and worship of sex because we've been here before. As you say, this is not progressive. This isn't new. This is what Christianity tried to um, bring out of some of the cultures that are now uh, what we'd call the West. So it's amazing how it comes full circle. And um, I also think, um, you know, one of the origins of this is also just basically you mentioned the thing about the male female spirit the kind of what the extra t might be on the lgbtqai plus um well there's this problem in how we even think about gender isn't there i've I've come back to this a few times and and i think feminism has more to answer for than we um, have previously acknowledged on this so there's lots of christians who would say Oh, it's, you know, again, there's loads of wonderful strides that have been made. Yes, of course, there have been in, in overcoming misogyny in, in loads of ways in chauvinism, um, in, in in kind of society which sort of moved, had already moved beyond Christian moorings and was kind of keeping the patriarchal elements um, in, in, embedded. Now, we've since, uh, in the last last kind of 100, 150 years, moved further and further away from what the Bible says about men and women being different. We had a whole episode on that. You might have heard about it um, or not. And I think we don't see these as connected to Pride or the LGBT gender, but of course they are. They're on a continuum because cause, cause Pride come, or LGBT kind of you know awareness and the sort of support for same-sex marriage comes out of the fact that it's okay for a man to marry a man or woman to marry a woman or be with mm. um, someone of the same sex. Because actually, what does it really matter? The differences between the sexes have been um, sort of that gap has just been closed off to the, almost it becomes your sexuality and gender are kind of continuum um, because we don't accentuate the differences because we're worried about accentuating the differences when actually the bible does accentuate the differences between men and women it thinks it's sacred thinks it's a good thing it doesn't apologize for those differences and so when the more and more we get embarrassed by those texts which which do accentuate the differences the more prone we are to moving in a pride direction. I know that might seem like a controversial thing to say, and it will take more unpacking maybe maybe some future episode, but I do think we're not dealing with a separate issue. Oh, men and women here, and then oh, this is the gay issue here. No, those are the same issue.
1: I think you're right. And as you were speaking there, it reminded me of I I came across in into preparation for a for a talk I was giving the other month, I came across a, an interesting observation that uh, that C.S. Lewis uh you know made uh, mm. back in the middle of the last century. He was writing on this issue of of gender as you described There And he wrote, uh, Lewis said, he said, the kind of equality which implies that the equals are interchangeable, like counters Mm. or identical machines, is among humans a legal fiction. It may be a useful legal fiction, but in the church we turn our back on fictions. One of the ends for which Mm. sex was created was to symbolize to us the hidden things of God. One of the functions of human marriage is to express the nature of the union between Christ and the church. We have no authority to take the living and seminal figures which God has painted on the canvas of our nature and shift them about as if they were mere geometrical figures. Mm. And I think I think you're absolutely mm. right. I think if, yeah, if you're not careful, if you simply, in your attempt to try and talk about equality, and I believe in equality between men and women, all, all bear the image of God. That's where the equality is grounded. Yeah. But if you foolishly <clears throat> forget that and try grounding it in everything being identical you're dead right you end up going well why can't you mm. simply swap them around but mm. the other point you mm. you made i think is interesting that that point about, about religion and what comes out of religious ideas mm. i think is what we don't uh think uh think enough about so uh, one of my my favorite theologians, uh, for a long time, obviously, after uh, Dr. A. Edwards of Cliff College, <laughs> clearly, you know, AP a. Edwards, AP yeah. Edwards. Uh, yes, oh, yeah, sorry, your initials are already, aren't they? So, we, we won't, we won't yeah, get... yeah, exactly. You need to go. I to... am an ape, you need to become an Anglican because then you could be a... I'm a Viking ape, you could become a, prim... a primate, but um, <laughs> uh, was anyway back to reality. Was uh, one of the things that Colin talked about was mm. that you know, there's a for, for a long time, skeptics used to make the argument that you know, theology. It's just anthropology projected into the sky. In other words, you know, Mm. there's the medieval peasant Mm. working away in the field. He looks up and he sees the castle in the distance and he thinks, well, I've got a lord. Maybe my lord's got a lord. And suddenly, (laughs) bing, God gets invented. And Gunton just sort of demolishes that quite neatly and says, actually, if you look historically and sociologically, it's the other way around. Theology precedes anthropology, by which he means Mm. the kind of gods you believe in will determine the kind of society that you mm. you construct and I remember at the time Absolutely. when I was doing my PhD in Islamic studies thinking well that's interesting because Islam with its extremely authoritarian monolithic view of God it's not an accident that that societies that are constructed along Islamic lines end up being totalitarian mm. um, yeah. equally in a society where mm. we believe you know we believe human beings are basically interchangeable units uh, where sex is the highest form of good it's the only thing we live for um, that we are basically comfortable nihilists, you know. No wonder we, we that's our religion as a society. No wonder the kind of mm. society it then builds is the kind where yeah. you have everything from pride uh, to mass abortion uh, to yeah. children to the very young and the very elderly are just treated mm. as disposable, and on and on it goes. Mm. Which again is exactly what the pagan world uh, was like yeah. back in the back in the yeah. first century. We, we have always gone full circle. Absolutely. So true. And and it's, you know, again, reminds us of
0: how, what great strides were made in, in the kind of conversion of Europe, as much as people will like to look down upon that. And there are problems with just with mass conversions um, in terms of nominalism. But at the same time, there's so much good that Christian virtue has done politically and socially sociologically anthropologically in terms of how people see themselves as human beings how they treat each other the kind of laws that are instituted on what basis a culture is formed and the connection between law and culture Um, and so yeah when we move into this um, very uncertain future that we see in the west today it's incredibly worrying to see how quickly we've shifted on that and it reminds me actually of, of a book that um, I heard about it fairly recently, actually, but I think I've heard it. I think I've heard it mentioned in previous years, but I've only really looked at it recently. And it was it was from 1989, I think mm-hmm. it was um, called "After the Ball: How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s" um, by uh, an author called Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen. This was a neuropsychiatrist, I think, or neuropsychologist, and a public relations mm-hmm. expert. They kind of teamed up. As a, and to write this sort of manifesto to the gay community coming out of the 80s and the kind of stigmas that were around homosexuality culturally. There was still lots of homophobia um, rife in the West at the time. But there was also a sense in which gay people were sort of accepted their lot of being odd. That's where the kind of the term queer would have been used, not always pejoratively, and now, of course, would be used pejoratively. Um, but the reason why that would come about was because it was seen as something off to the side so there was a kind of became a gradual social tolerance of homosexuality but only as a side show as something kind of going in underground clubs places off the beaten track it wasn't front and center as it is now and of course that gradually changed and there was a really interesting interesting to see how this was a kind of planned premeditated tactic to change that persona of the kind of very flamboyant promiscuous sex um, image of the gay community into no stable and actually challenging the norms and challenging the fact that this is seen as abnormal. Um, so, uh, Al, Al Moller, kind of a um, Southern Baptist writer, wrote a, an article in many years ago, actually 2004, called "After the Ball: Why the Homosexual Movement Has Won." He's writing that even before same-sex marriage was made legal in in the U.S. or in Britain, um and and makes some really really interesting points about you know highlighting some of the issues of how it, it went from being you know, issues of morality about what is right and what is wrong, which, you know, with Christian foundations within culture, we have, you know, clearly there are Christian ways of seeing something that is right or wrong. That became it sort of minimised and it became more about rights. What's the language of rights? What rights should gay people have? Um, and that became the kind of hallmark of the um, public relations strategy. And um, he says, so let me, here's a really interesting quote from um, the book itself um, where they talk about Kirk and Madsen are sort of thinking about how do we present this issue to show how stupid it is to be against homosexuality in any form Um, because we want to show that they're completely gay people are completely um, in their expression of their sexuality are normal therefore almost heteronormativity which now is a term we all know but we didn't used to know that's now a problem so to think of heterosexuality as the norm is now a problem and if you even say that you're actually a bigot and you're a horrible person uh, despite the fact that we're talking one to two percent of the population in britain at least who would be same-sex attracted it's now it's not you're still not allowed to say it's normal to be 98 percent of the population um, but anyway so what, what they say is here's what we want to do we want to put this in a sort of aesthetics goes back to the aesthetics from the rainbow flags regalia propaganda so he says for example for several seconds we should show an unctuous beady-eyed southern preacher shown pounding the pulpit in rage against, quote, those perverted, abominable creatures. And then it says, the, the tirade continues over the soundtrack and the picture switches to heart-rending photos of badly beaten persons or of gays who look decent, harmless and likable. And then we cut back to the poisonous face of the preacher. The contrast speaks for itself. The effect is devastating. So it really was this sort of strategy to say we need to put juxtapose two images: a really outrageous caricature of someone, a hysterical backwards preacher, you know, f- froth mouthed, and then we need to contrast that with a very nice, sensible gay couple. And so you see that all the time in the in the public relations that you see now with the LGBT agenda in culture. So it makes it really, really hard for Christians to stand up and and say I disagree with this without basically saying oh, so you do, do you side with the horrible you know, browbeating, uh, pulpit-pounding person who doesn't seem like he's a very nice person. Well, you sort of, well, I guess I have to side with that person if you're saying, um, if it's a want, an either-or choice. But it isn't an either-or choice, but they've made it look <clears throat> like that and that the yeah. aesthetics win.
1: Which is interesting because, again, I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, the number of times when I've come across a Christian who has, you know, changed their view on sexuality mm. often lying behind it is the story where they met somebody who was a, who was a, you know, they met a, a gay couple who were mm. lovely. Mm. I mean, we talked about Steve mm. Shawk on, yeah, yeah. on the show and critiques. He's a, Steve. He's a big fan of the, big fan of the show. Yeah, right? Big fan of the show. Yeah. And, um, you know, we critique Steve and I think quite, quite rightly reason we do that. He's a public, He's a public figure. And I think when you when you come out and you state a position publicly, you are inviting people yeah. to critique you. And the same would go for, for URIs. If people want to take an issue with what we've said on Polar gaps, we're on social media. We're on we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We we invite that. But what I would say is interesting, obviously as you know as anyone who knows Steve's story, he was a, you know, regular run of the mill, conservative evangelical, and then, you know, came across a couple of gay uh, you know sort of couples who he really liked thought they were lovely people and as he got to know them he changed his view um, mm-hmm. firstly I think that's, that's, that, that, that's a, an, obviously an awful reason for doing and also of course as I think Tim Keller uh, once famously pointed out if that's the reason you change your view it means before you met that couple you were a bigot um, mm-hmm. because folks like you and I hold this view not because we hate anybody because we think mm. this is what scripture teaches mm. and that God's yeah. a good design for marriage but it's another thing I yeah. want to throw in as well at this point that I think mm. is really helpful I can't remember if we mentioned before, one of the kind of leading kind of uh, sort of p- p- people writing right now on morality and ethics and these kind mm-hmm. of things is the, uh, the American moral philosopher Jonathan Haidt, uh, H-I-H-A-O-N-D-T. Oh, yeah. And Jonathan's book, The Righteous Mind, for a few years ago, is really helpful because Jonathan, um, the subtitle of that book is Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics, and I forget the, the third of the, the three. And his point mm. is, that, is that often when people talk past each other, on moral issues, um, we fail to understand that the foundations they're starting from are so different, um, mm. and the reason we don't agree is that we, uh, the starting points are different. And he he has a nice illustration where he says, just as you know, your tongue has these different receptors for different tastes—you know, salty and sweet mm. and sour uh, and bitter and so on—he has mm-hmm. this idea, this thesis that there are, there are six different moral tastes, as it as it were, and people mm. will build their morality on these different foundations. He said a lot of conservatives. Uh, will build their their moral foundations on on what he calls the the, the, uh, the loyalty uh, betrayal foundation and also the authority mm. subversion foundation. So for us as Christians, uh, we take the Bible as authoritative. We also think that community and loyalty and those kind of things are, to society and community are important. That's where we build foundations from. The problem is we live in an age that is increasingly shifted to another pair of receptors that Haidt identifies, which is the care harm foundation mm. and you think how much of what mm. goes on in the public mm. discourse right now is about well you know we want to care for people and, and, and you yeah. will harm people if you restrict mm. their sexuality And to care for mm. people and to be loving to people you need to just affirm their choices yeah and um, and jonathan yeah. it's a very clever book the righteous mind because he's not he's not arguing for the rightness or the wrongness of any of those he's simply yeah. making the observation that you then get these bizarre situations yeah. where people on totally different foundations talk right past each other and mm-hmm. i think one of the things that's important for christians to do is be aware of those different foundations that I think height does identify quite well. Mm. And of course, recognize Mm. the Bible does speak to all of them. The Bible doesn't just speak in terms of authority. The Bible does Mm. also speak in terms of care and harm, for example. And actually, Mm. I think it's Mm. important we find a way to explain that we think that the Bible is designed, God's designed for sexuality, is not just about God throwing his weight around and going, right, this will make the suckers miserable. (laughs) It's because (laughs) that God wants the very best for us. He's designed us that way sexuality is designed with yeah. a purpose and an intention and that when you live within that actually there is great good comes out of that for yeah. the individual for the family and the mm. and the society. and we mm. have to find ways i think of, of addressing and speaking that language of mm. care and harm not exclusively um but we need to find a way of engaging it yeah because otherwise we are going it- to, we're going to struggle slightly
0: Exactly, you're so right. Because I think that's this is this is another reason why people don't enter into the debate. Because they'll be called someone who's an enabler of abuse or an enabler of homophobia or something exactly. if they speak out against it. So the church, even before a preacher stands up to speak, they feel like they have to like I said, they have to apologize for homophobia, whether they think they're personally guilty of it or not. They sometimes even apologize for heteronormativity. Even evangelicals do this, and you just think, goodness, what kind of authority of scripture are you really? Uh, laboring under, because I think the Bible is not—I mean, it's both. And it's obviously it is both um, showing that positive vision that God loves us and wants the best for us, but it also does have judgment, doesn't it, against those who are sexually immoral? Yeah. And we just don't like to talk like that. We don't. We. We know it's in the New Testament and the Old Testament. You don't need to just go to Leviticus and then people bring out their classic shellfish rebuttal to say, "Oh, okay, well, shellfish is an abomination, therefore homosexuality isn't an abomination," and God was clearly just, you know messing around with words at the time, or doing something contextually um, located, so therefore it doesn't matter. And so there's, there's that element, and the fact that we're neutered from the start by that those kind of categories that you're you're talking about. And the other thing is, um, we, like I said earlier, that our political theology is sort of a bit confused. So we sort of don't think that we can say anything about anything that happens beyond the church. So we just think, well, right, the world go to pot? I will just focus on what we can do in the church. Let's make the church as good as it can be, without realising that when you're not front-footed in mission, don't be surprised if as the gods don't find their way in, the ideologies don't find their way in. We've seen many, many big denominations and networks shift on loads of issues recently. You know, the, the latest on um, on British Methodism, not that they've gone for this yet, but they undoubtedly will. Um, on the um, They've obviously went for same-sex marriage a couple of years ago. Um, and now, or well, last year was when it officially went through, but it's been in, in the works for a while. But now it's kind of poly- polygamy come up quite fast as many predicted um and here's a here's a, a paragraph from the the report that went to the Methodist conference this year at present polygamy is not legally possible within the united kingdom and it is a question that predominantly arises more in the context of relationships with world church partners interesting, by the way, this is the time that they talk about the world church. They didn't talk about the world church when it came to homosexuality, because the world church had a much stronger view on it, uh, to the contrary to what British Methodism chose to do last year. Nonetheless, now they're saying we're really interested in global church partners. Anyway, continues, polyamory places emphasis on deep, intimate relationships with more than one partner. Both of these patterns of relating which potentially involve long-term, committed sexual relationships with more than one partner at the same time, merit further theological attention. You know, this was this was a satire, just like last year. This was a satire. Next will be polygamy. Next you'll say, I can be involved in, in a committed long-term relationship with any number of people, um, and it will sh- be fine. And people go, oh, don't be so silly. Don't be so alarmist. You're just missing the point. We're just today focused on... Getting the best, caring for these previously persecuted people who are same-sex attracted, who need to be welcomed in. Well, it's there's literally no reason why you can't go for polyamory. So this is this is just a paragraph right now. Mark my words, this will be in the the yeah. you know in the canon law as it were, the equivalent in, in yeah. Methodist policy um, very soon.
1: I don't disagree, and it's 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 funny, isn't it? On the one hand, I I instinctively don't like slippery slope arguments because it is very easy to go well this and therefore boom, yeah, yeah um kind of thing but you know because you stole the paper clip from work today tomorrow you'll be you know <laughs> building concentration camps but um mm. but they also the reason the slippery slope arguments are around is they is they is there is a truth to them and i and i agree and i think the other one that 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 worries me deeply and is what's going to happen around young people um, I mean, in one sense, if you look at the damage the transgender movement has done to young people, you know, young people mm. being, uh, you know, coerced into destroying their fatality, fertility, hacking off body mm. parts, you know, taking drugs with horrendous uh, mm. side effects. So the point is, mm. once you've decided that young people can consent to doing that, can consent to yeah. as a 14 year old, you know, making a decision that will affect, you know, them for years to come, once you've introduced the idea of consent, And once you've Mm. introduced the idea that actually they can make those life-changing choices, what then happens when said 14-year-old says, well, I want to have a sexual relationship with my math teacher who's 20 years older than me. I understand consent. Uh, I know Mm. what I'm doing. I want to do this. It's my human right, incidentally, and all these other things. Um, I don't know at that point how you hold that line. Quite frankly, mm. it's a very, very mm. seems to me to be an incredibly thin and tenuous line to just go. Well, right now, you know, sixteen is the age of consent, and that's not going to go yeah. anywhere. I mean, I think it was Peter Tatchell, famous gay rights campaigner, who's been quite public about he thinks that should be a lower, uh, a lower mm. age, and so on. Mm. But look, the other thing mm. I want to say, because I think as we, you know, we we come yeah, yeah. To begin heading in towards our landing, I think it's I think it's also important to end in, on a note of hope. I'm very struck by. You know, as we think around sexuality and, and why we talk about this stuff, not because we want to be legalistic or Pharisaical, but because we want we think that what the Bible offers is, is, is a much better story of human sexuality. I'm reminded of you know Rosaria Butterfield, who amazing testimony. Mm-hmm. If you, People have never come across her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She was a uh, left wing Marxist, atheist, lesbian, mm-hmm. um, deeply committed atheist, hated Christianity, um, for quite dramatic conversion uh to Christ and is now married with children, um, mm-hmm. and has written a lot on all of these issues around sexuality. I remember her in a piece that she wrote for the Gospel Coalition a few years ago saying, you know, there are three tragic mistakes the church makes around LGBT issues, and they're tragic because each one of them really sort of uh, you know, denies uh the ability of the person you're you're trying to you're engaging with to to discover the you know the the, the freedom and grace in the gospel. First mistake is homophobia. She said, you know, let's, we need to be honest. It is, it is in the church. And when we see it, we need to address it and call it and name it out and deal with it. But she said, that's the first issue. Second mistake, she said, is the other extreme, which is just, you know, embracing somebody who's LGBT and go, nothing needs to mm-hmm. change. You're absolutely fine as you are. Bring it all into mm-hmm. the, you know, God loves mm-hmm. it all and love is love and stuff. Like that. That's devastating mm-hmm. because you are basically facilitating somebody to just, you know, be living and, and walking in in sinfulness rather than a redeemed transformed sexuality and by all Mm. means recognize that when someone becomes a christian it may take some time for the holy spirit to work in them but you don't just help them to stay there and then that third Mm. point i made there that's her last one of saying the other mistake the church sometimes make is expecting in instant transformation and she argues Mm. that we need to build christian communities where we don't compromise on on what we talk we teach about god's plan for sexuality but we also offer Mm. a radical welcome and so, if you walk mm. through the doors of the church as someone who's LGBT, you will find love, you will find welcome, you'll find honesty. Um, mm. And should you choose to follow Christ, you will find help and support in working mm. out what that following Christ looks like for your sexuality. And yeah, you'll make mistakes and we won't mm. condemn you. We won't equally just like grease the skids and facilitate you, but we'll, mm. we will find community and, uh, mm. and you'll find help in living out holy sexuality.
0: And mm. I think holding those Absolutely. three
1: things in mind and making sure that we don't fall into any of those traps it's helpful, yeah, because um, it, um, it keeps our it keeps our focus of what the gospel is designed to do. That's really really helpful. And you
0: know, as as um, <clears throat> off the back of that, as we as we bring this um, Viking longboat into shore, um, we uh, we um, it, I think you know, you think of those organisations like Living Out, which are really helpful for giving a a category for Christians who struggle. Yep, that's right in this area which is different I, I chatted to a guy called andrew bunt who works with them recently he's got a book coming out on transgender i think sometime later this year um and i was asking him because he's with he's came from the same sort of church circles as me new frontiers and I, and I was asking i was really intrigued and it was really helpful to hear him speak about it so what so what you know i was asking about this homophobia thing like what did you did you really think new frontiers churches for example were they homophobic he said no i didn't i didn't really experience any homophobia other than the sort of normal stuff you might get um in the playground sort of like in terms of the way people use the term gay in previous generation, but he said didn't really, he wouldn't, he wouldn't say that they were homophobic. So that's why I would assume, I don't think most evangelicals have actually been actively homophobic. But he said, one thing that struck me that I hadn't thought of before was there was never a place for him to, he was same sex attracted and always has been as far as he knows. And he said, whenever they talked about sexuality in any seminar or something, or, or homosexuality especially, as an issue, quote-unquote issue, which it is, of course, um, it was always about people outside the church. Mm. He said, I, I, I was listening to, like in a seminar at New Day or something, at a, a festival, and go, I, I am at, I'm feeling I'm one of these people in a sense, but you're talking about them as non-Christians that we have to sort of relate to outside the church. So is there a pl- was there a place for someone who's same-sex attracted, but really on fire for Jesus, and wants to follow his word as he does. So He wants to, you know, he's not acting on his on his desires. And there's all sorts of other reflections that need to come into that. He's, you know, he's not the kind of person who goes, "I'm a, I'm a gay Christian" as my identity. Just this is where his where he is in terms of his desire, and he can't, as far as he can see, he can't, you know, can't change it. Now that's a whole other discussion we won't get into whether whether that can change. But I do think it's important to recognise, yeah, there has been a shift that's helpful in terms of yes, we we don't want we don't want to do any indirect or direct homophobia but at the same time we need to push back upon this problem of the other side of this which is that pride now becomes the norm one one final thing we should mention is, is act 17 we've talked a lot on this episode haven't we Andy about <clears throat> the gods and different I- ideas different ideologies and idolatries and I think we think of Paul going into Athens and he's distressed within him at the idolatry that he sees within the city yeah, he's, he's provoked within him and he's, he's trying to reason he's trying to bring wisdom in the marketplace um, to these different ideas and then gets invited to speak to them and of course doesn't speak directly from scripture but speaks from the Greek poets which of course liberals love to make all sorts of carnivals out of as the basis for their entire approach to theology and ministry. But of course, we can just take it as a good example of contextualization when you are in a a place of rampant idolatry. How do you find those connections with people? What are people at Pride looking for? What are they searching for? Can you make those connections? But at the same time, we've got to do that in a way that's robust and is able to go, this actually is, you do need to repent. There there is a problem here. And that's what Paul does as well. So he doesn't just go in affirming the idolatry. He says, I can see you're very religious and let me come and show you where the origins of that impulse even come from and how that same God that you're looking for, I can reveal to you who he is and how you need to repent of your sin and come to him and accept him. And that's what we're, we're praying and hoping for in all of our speech to the quote-unquote lgbt community we want to see people come to know christ we want to see them not going down a pathway that will set his judgment against them and we need to be bold in doing so as well as trying to be wise and and and, and humble in the way we go about it But we don't want to allow humility quote-unquote to you know there's the idea of humility is sort of under yeah. you know to uh, over overwhelm our witness overall well,
1: i think um I keep saying we're coming in for a landing and then you keep opening up new <laughs> new angles. I think what I would say, I think you're right, I think I think humility, maybe we need to do an episode a whole episode on this. I think humility is an, an entirely misunderstood virtue. Actually, humility, mm. I don't I, I think I humility is not silence necessarily. It can be, mm. but, but it's not necessarily mm. silence, nor is it refusing to speak up. I think the main thing humility is refusing to put oneself forward um Mm. and that um you know it's putting the other person first and if the other person is living in you know in sexual immorality and is and is far from god actually humility is not saying nothing humility is finding that way to engage and help them without making yourself the center of the show humility is not Mm. going hey i've got it all sorted out humility Mm. might be saying actually you know like paul writes the corinthians such was some of you such was i you know humility might be going yeah that was my life and this is what i was like Mm. and i was a total wreck until Christ mm. found mm. and rescued me. That's humility because mm. it points to Him, not to us. But I love mm. Act 17. I'm glad you ended, ended that. I, I covered, I talked about Act 17 at the, in, at the end of my last book on engaging Muslims. And in fact, one of my friend. well, we've got a mutual friend, haven't we? Dan Strange. Dan's mm. book, uh, we might put a link to this in the show notes, Plugged In, um, is a brilliant exposition, I think, of Act 17 and how we apply it to contemporary culture Mm, and exactly like you say Paul you know Dan in that book points out there's actually four there's four things in a sense that that Paul does in that that passage that we can learn from first he takes the time to understand you know don't open your Mm. mouth without looking you know yes we have we could talk about pride but watch firstly you know listen you know understand what's going on secondly as you say look for look for where there's a desire expressed that is actually of there is something of God in there and so in sexuality that desire for intimacy I think it was G.K. Chesterton you mm. said, you know, when a man when a man's knocking when you see a man knocking on the door of a brothel, he's actually looking for God because mm-hmm. he's looking for mm-hmm. intimacy, he's looking the wrong places. Yeah. Thirdly, yeah. then, you know, Dan would say, then the critique comes of going, well, let's show how the the secular worldview that you're engaging with doesn't, doesn't answer that question. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't give what's promised and it mm. fails. Mm. Um, and then you show how the gospel does mm. offer. And I think when you think about yeah. that framework, you know, understand, look for the look for the good. Don't be Mm. afraid to critique and then show how the gospel actually. And Dan Dan has this lovely phrase he uses, a subversive fulfillment, where actually the gospel subversively fulfills what everyone is looking for in those other worldviews because Mm. that's what we expect. God made us and designed Mm. us. He knows what we need. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in him, as Augustine Mm. would say. And until they find Mm. their rest in him, we are going to flap around trying to find meaning and significance and happiness Mm. in sexuality or possessions Mm. or power or all those Mm. things and it will fail until we find Mm. our rest in him. Mm. Wonderful
0: yes and and, I love how you and you you humbly started with your own book plug but then you spent longer talking about the other person which is wonderful it's a wonderful way of doing it. yeah and I I never tire of the phrase the GK another Chesterton quote um uh, the one that it's a humble man who talks much for the proud man watches himself too closely and so we don't want to allow absolutely that idea to stop us speaking so in order to do all those wonderful things that Andy's just um, laid out from uh, Dan's book in terms of what Paul does in in Athens we do need to speak up in in all different kinds of ways so do be encouraged to do that Um, and I do hope you've found this episode helpful as much as we told you it was ending long before it actually ended um but we you know we hope it's been helpful to kind of reflect upon please do get in touch come and come and speak to us come and ask us some questions about stuff and of course as we said before do can, do come along to cedarwood festival july 17th and come and ask us face to face beard to beard if you have a beard Andy might have grown some stubble by then. i could Who grow knows?
1: one just in in, in celebration kind of thing.
0: exactly that'd be lovely very, very good very viking of you as well right wonderful well until next time I've been Aaron Edwards. This has been Andy Bannister. He has been Andy Bannister indeed. And we have been part of the Caps. Farewell.
1: Fun. Goodbye for now. <laughs>